Welcome to episode 108 of Destination Linux. Destination Linux is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever to discuss their passion for Linux on a show called Destination Linux. I'm Michael, and with me today are the three podcasting gurus. Noah, how are you doing this week? Hey, pretty good. And Ryan? Vega 7. Enough said. That's actually, yes, that is enough said. Uh, the show's over, uh, so done. <laughs> so how are you doing, Zeb? Yeah, I'm doing really well, and my wallet is doing really well because I didn't go for the Vega 7. <laughs> okay, so Zeb, what have you been up to this week? Um, well, I've been taking part in the um, community challenge and using OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. Um, and very nice it is too, but the question of will I be keeping it as one of my distros that I will you know, use and, and nurture? I doubt it. It's just a bit too alien from the from the Ubuntu bases that I'm used to. Yeah, it is quite different. Um, so what's been different with you, Ryan? Well, I've had some interesting things going on. Number one, the Radeon 7 video card that launched the first 7 nanometer GPU that will be in a consumer's hands is on its way to my house and will be here Wednesday. We'll be doing some videos on that. Very different videos than what you're seeing out there from a lot of the, you know, window users out there that like to run just endless benchmarks and say, okay, well, here's the difference between the two cards because this is what Mark 3D or whatever benchmark tool uses. We're going to be doing real world stuff, including my brother, the game developer is going to come over and really put it to its test with things that AMD tends to do very well in such as video game rendering and how many polygons we can put on the screen at one time and those type of things. So nice. very different type of tests than you're going to see in your typical videos uh, with the Radeon 7. And additionally, I kind of followed your lead a little bit here. After my lunch with Bo last week, we decided to make this a regular thing. So I have launched the North Georgia Coffee and Linux meetup group that's going to be happening in nice. all around Georgia every single month. So it's the uh, details are on my webpage and everybody who wants to just come down, have some coffee and talk about Linux. Maybe you need help with Linux. Maybe it's your first time with Linux. We don't care what your skill level is. Just come hang out with us. You'll have Bo, me there. We're going to bring our sons to the first one so you can meet our kids. And nice. uh, they both use Linux too. So it's going to be a really good time, I think. Very nice. It's, it's always really nice to you know, meet people in person with the meetups, and especially you can help help people learn how to use it. And it's interesting that you're doing that. What did you call it? The coffee and coffee? Coffee and, coffee Linux. and Linux. Yeah. Nice. And the, the coffee shop we're going to be hanging out with is a brand new one. So it's a local business. And they do aged whiskey barrels with that they put their coffee beans in. So it's a very different coffee experience there. Um, so I think the kids are going to love the adult. I'm, I'm not kidding. We <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so no, what kinds of things have you been doing this week? Oh, well, I actually, I didn't do any Linux thing. Well, nothing significant. We're talking about Linux things this week, but I did something kind of interesting, non Linux related. I, I, I got part of, became part of a curling club. Uh, it was essentially a dare from my boss at the radio station <laughs> that we could take on a national championship. And so we took on a national curling champion, and somehow we won. Whoa. <laughs> wow. What? I have tweeted pictures of Team Electric Slide and our competition <laughs> against the 1974 curling champion as we tied the first game and won the second. Nice. <laughs> so the, just so I'm not sure, this is not like weightlifting curling. This is where you clean the ice, right? Yeah, yeah. This is throwing rocks down yeah. the ice. And Are you, know, you a shooter us, or a sweeper? 
you have to yeah, the rules say that you have to everybody has to throw a rock so primarily i was a sweeper but then i also had to throw a rock i think only one of which made it into the doghouse the rest of them went various places none of now, which i feel I like had. this is a misunderstood sport so i'm curious i know it was a challenge did you end up really liking it is this something you no. think <laughs> I, here's the here's the thing the, the way this the way this challenge started is my boss at the radio station went on the air and he said somebody said something about curling and he said curling isn't a real sport anybody can win at curling just the, the pure if you can get up and walk around you have enough athletic ability to win at curling which drew the next three hours of criticism from people that said we don't understand curling you don't understand he's like listen i'll beat anybody at curling and so then this 1974 curling champion said i'll take you on and so he called me up and he's like no do you want to be on a curling team i'm like ryan i don't know anything about curling he's like doesn't matter it requires absolutely no skill and we'll win on sheer athletic ability alone <laughs> sounds like a winning strategy i'll be there so we showed up and, and you won and then we won so That's of course amazing. that went right to his head right i thought i came in here thinking that it required no skill whatsoever to win <laughs> turns out we were right <laughs> Love it. The official sport of Linux geeks. Yeah, apparently. Sure. sure, why not? Well, before we get into the email, I just wanted to give a special thanks to everyone who has supported the GoFundMe page to bring Zeb to America and to, to sell Southeast Linux Fest. And uh, you, we've raised so far uh, $750 of the $2,000 goal. And that's just incredible. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's, sh it's shocking and amazing. So thank you very much. Yeah, and so the page is still up for people who would want to help bring Zeb along with the rest of the cute crew to uh, get all together at Southeast Linux Fest. And any amount of donation would be appreciated, whether it's a dollar or ten dollars, however, whatever you want to do. That's it's, it all adds up to it to make it possible. So we very much appreciate that. And we will be doing a live show from Southeast Linux Fest along with the Ask Noah show, and we'll be doing some live streaming with Zeb to. Uh, basically show him the ins and outs of how to be an American and a variety of different <laughs> other things. So, Like so, him checking you in person? No, no, definitely not have that. And that's not going to happen. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> that, that was in the show notes. So I thought maybe yeah, that I was Yeah, I ignored that. that completely. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, we're, we're very much appreciative. And if you would like to, you can go to destinationlinux.org slash zeb to self or Z-E-B-T-O-S-E-L-F. Noah, what has we got the email this week? The email starts with, hi, long-time listener, Ryan is awesome, first time contacting y'all. I really enjoy the show, but I've never seen it. My podcasting opportunities occur in the car while I'm out walking the dog, so audio only. Also, I may occasionally comment, but occasionally my dog gets to hear it. In this case, I thought I'd make a quick comment of support of one of my favorite projects, and that is Darktable. During the discussion of Electron and Adobe products in episode 100, sorry, I'm a bit behind, the comparison between GIMP and Photoshop focused on the fact that Photoshop is a non-destructive editor and GIMP is not. That's one of the reasons I like Darktable. It is completely non-destructive, so changes can always be reversed and can be modified at any time and in any order. I think the main difference between Photoshop and the Linux competition is sheer availability of additional tools available with the Photoshop. I have seen what folks who depend on Photoshop are willing to spend on additional functionality through third-party plugins, and it is breathtaking. In Linux terms, Compare the community around the Raspberry Pi with the community around the Odroid C2. That will give you some idea of the difference of opinion that can be added to Photoshop compared to the GIMP or Darktable or whatever image or editor you might prefer. This is in no way intended as anything other than helpful and supportive contributions. Please keep up the good work, John. I like so, John. John's awesome. John is awesome. He makes a he makes a half decent point. Misguided. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> I think that uh, I I think that. 
where we may have to agree to disagree is Darktable is not really comparable to Photoshop, I would say. Right. I'd say Darktable is really more comparable to Lightroom. And I would say that, you know, Darktable is really for editing photos, whereas GIMP and Photoshop are really about creating graphics from the ground up. That so, But him and I can just kind of agree to disagree on that part. His his idea of uh, that there is an infrastructure and an ecosystem around Adobe Photoshop uh, remains true, and, and I would agree with that. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the Photoshop, one of the biggest things about Photoshop is the plugins, but the most important fundamental piece is the non-destructive thing. And his point about Darktable being non-destructive is totally accurate because uh, Darktable is a fantastic piece of software. I mean, it's it's comparable, even some in some ways, better than Lightroom. Um, so, especially the newest version of Lightroom. Uh, so, Darktable being non-destructive is very important, but it is a very different uh, type of application. It's more of a mo enhancer modifying of individual photos and stuff, um, but or like even like an automated structure of, of improving things like that. But it's more uh, where Photoshop is more of a creating things from scratch or manipulating things in a much more like fine-grained way. Whereas Darktable is more of like you have plugins to increase the brightness or improve the different coloring, whereas Photoshop you can go into individual pixels and modify things. So that's it's very different, uh, it's, but I do agree that the non-destructive part is a fantastic piece of Darktable. So, Michael, I wanted to ask you some additional information because you've mentioned this multiple times about non-destructive. Is this a situation in which, like, when, when I think of destructing in a file – where you're copying it multiple times and you start losing more and more quality of that every time you're copying it, or mm. give me some more information about what you mean non-destructive and okay. would that replace, would that make GIMP now your replacement if they fix that one feature? It would make it a, a possibility that it could become a replacement. It, it, it would be a competitor. Like right now they're not really competitors because Photoshop and the, the workflow of Photoshop and, and GIMP are so different that a professional designer who uses Photoshop would not even consider GIMP uh, because of the non-destructive part. So uh, the the point that a lot of people look at not the destructiveness as removing content uh, like the quality you were talking about, but in terms of design, destructiveness is removing the ability to edit specific tasks that you've previously done. So for example, in GIMP, when you have a new layer, okay, let's say for example, you have 20 different tasks that you want to do. And, you, and in, in GIMP, they always tell you to create a new layer for each individual thing that you want to do. So you have a new layer, and you, when you change it, make a new layer, change that part, another, and you keep going. So essentially, you have a sort of non-destructive, but not really. But it means, let's say, for example, you have 20 things you want to do, but you made a mistake on number seven. So you want to go back to number seven, change it, and then have everything after that update based on that change. But you can't do that in GIMP. You have to delete all the ones you previously did, oh, then go wow. to seven, change it, then do all the other ones you did again on top of it. Whereas non-destructive with Photoshop, you just go into the number seven, change that little tweak, and everything afterwards automatically adjusts. So like that, so that one piece without having that in GIMP means that GIMP is not professionally usable because I can't go back to any of my client work and then fix whatever you know tiny change they want to make. So I can't use GIMP because of that. So to give a, a, a really silly example of that, let's say that on that slide number seven or that bit number seven, mm -hmm. you had put some wording on the slide that had um, 
H-T-E, not T-H-E. So you're saying that if you then continue to work on it and you suddenly thought, ow, that's wrong, you could go back to number seven, change it to T-H-E, and all the other slides would then incorporate that new version of that, that wording. Yes, exactly. Like wow, that's, that's, that's how Photoshop works. That is, yeah. yeah, that, that would be necessary. See, and I guess that's why I never ran into it, number one, because I'm not a professional editor. But number two, most layers I ever have are three or four. And it's, right. I didn't even know that that option existed. But when you start getting into more than three or four layers of something, you know, you're, you're doing oh, something yeah. professionally, that starts being a really important task. So that makes a lot more sense of exactly. why. Exactly. Yeah. Just to be clear, like, I want to say that, uh, you know, I'm not against GIMP because 90% of people who use computer, who use any kind of editing can totally right. get done what they want in GIMP. It's just, I have to do things to a ridiculous level of how many times I do it and how many times I got to go back and change things. So the, the non-destructiveness is in one of the most important fundamental pieces that's why GIMP isn't a competitor. If GIMP were to add non-destructive, which they said that they were going to like the end of 2019, they announced this last year, it's possible that GIMP at some point would become a competitor. Right now, it's on the it's not even in the same you know ballpark of discussion, but it could be at some point once they add it, and they would have to add extra features like smart objects are composites inside of other composites. So with, I can make, you know how that there's a different non-destructive and it's different layers. I can also have a smart object, which is a composite completely separate from the main composite that I can manipulate it independently and then only apply later effects inside of this one whole collective where I, instead of like having the, every layer adjusting each other based on what you're doing, this is just completely separate layer that is like completely independent and I can make all kinds of different changes. So like all of these different features would make GIMP a competitor. But at the moment, it's really non-destructive is the most important thing they need to add. Nice. Excellent. So you can see why we want to get these um, emails from you because it does it does open up the discussion on the subjects that you that you bring up to us. So send us your email, um, ask that burning question, or simply give us some feedback. And please send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You get access to all this plus their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's only 7 tenths of 1 cent per hour. That's, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started with DigitalOcean for two months for free with $100 credit by going to do.co slash dl. Again, I'll repeat it. That's do.co slash dl. You can use the $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets, or you can use some of their beefy droplets, including their big uh, you know, test run with a big 16-gig uh, RAM, six virtual CPU yeah. droplet that has six terabytes of transfer. Again, you can get started with DigitalOcean for that $100 credit by going to do.co slash dl. And thanks to uh, DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. This week, we're going to cover a January update from the Ubuntu Studio team. And since one of our friends of the show is a team member for the Ubuntu Studio team, we thought we might as well have Eric join us. So joining us today is Eric Eichmeyer from uh, the Ubuntu Studio team. Welcome to the show, Eric. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, Eric is an audio engineer, a video producer, photographer, and the leader and council, uh, the council chair of the Ubuntu Studio team. Uh, so first up, as far as an audio engineer, 
uh, and photographer and producer, it would seem you were destined to be working one day with the Ubuntu Studio team. So before we get into that, let's uh, take us back to the beginning of how you first uh, found and started using Linux. Well, that's going to have to take us back to about 1996 when I first tried putting Slackware on an old PCXT, an IBM PCXT I had sitting around uh, with CGI graphics, not CGI graphics, but CGA graphics. So we're talking the old school, like first color on a computer type stuff. Nice. And so I, I put it on there. I was able to get X started, but that was about it because I didn't, couldn't figure out the whole ma window manager and... That was it. That's about all I could do with that. And I moved back to Windows and Mac. And then uh, about 2008 came along and I'm like, oh, it got a netbook. And I'm like, oh, let's play with the built-in operating system that HP made for it, which was based on Ubuntu. So I played around with it. I'm like, well, this is crap. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I installed Ubuntu netbook on it. And... From there, I would just started playing with it. Ubuntu, this was the days of Intrepid Ibex about 10 years ago. It was uh, 8.10. And uh, I played around with that for a little while. Play, and it, I would install it. And I was just like, okay, uh, now what? But I, because there wasn't very much you could do with it at the time. And so I was just, you know, I was kind of a Mac geek at the time. And so I left. And then when my son was born, I went ahead and went back to it, found out, you know, whoa, this has gotten way better. That was about the days of Unity. So we're looking at like 11.10. Kind of haven't left since. But I ran across Ubuntu Studio back then. And I was like, okay, if it weren't for the XFCE desktop, I'd be okay with this. Uh, it's got everything that I would ever want in an, in a software suite, really. So I played around with it and I got into it and I was like, okay, this is cool. Uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, it, but it wasn't until uh, I got back into audio engineering that, uh, you know, I've been on and off, but after I started doing, uh, you know, leading stuff at the, the church I was working at, I was like, okay, I've got to figure out a good way to do some audio plugins because I've got this amazing console that I can route audio through. And at that point, I was like, okay. So I was kind of distro hopping at that point between different uh, Linux uh, audio video suites and, you know, between Fedora Jam and uh, Ubuntu Studio. And um, then I saw that Ubuntu Studio was having trouble. When I looked at Ubuntu Studio just a couple of years ago, there wasn't a lot there. And there was a lot of people, myself included, that looked at that distro and said, why would I download a distribution specifically for producing stuff when I can download regular stock Ubuntu and just install the stuff that, that I want and have it customized to, to my specific workflow? And since you have stepped in, you've essentially drug Ubuntu Studio from the grip of death and made it into a, a very appealing distro that a lot of people are going back to. So tell us a story about that. Yeah, so I, I, I saw a call out for people to join the, this council that was forming. And I, I was just like, okay, so here we have what is arguably the most popular multimedia operating system on the planet it hasn't seen any development since 1604. This is, you know, like a year ago. So we're talking two years after the release of, of 1604. And there's nothing going on. It, the, the packages are outdated. It's, it, it's just, and not only that, but people are kind of calling it the laughing stock of multimedia Linux at this point. So I was like, well, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and help. So I jumped, I looked at the mailing list. There was no activity going on at all. 
So I went ahead and started in on the mailing list and um, introduced myself. I'm like, hey, what can I do to help? And they're like, okay, um, go ahead and do anything you want. Don't feel free, be afraid to step on anybody's toes. Um, just you know, run some ideas past, we'll see what we can do. And so uh, they're like, okay, let's go ahead and start a meeting. Let's, we'll schedule a meeting. I'm like, okay, I'm free this time. Okay, so we did a chat room meeting and there was no agenda. Nobody had any agenda and it was just like this meeting. Why are we talking about? They're like, yeah, we, we, we don't really know. Uh, our leader is not here. I'm like, okay, well, let's go ahead and talk about, I, I just kind of started talking about, okay, where are we at with this? And then um, one of the, one of the developers, uh, Len ovens, great guy. He said, well, I could go ahead and maybe try uh, doing some stuff to Ubuntu studio controls and all that sort of make it ha better. I'm like, okay, that sounds really good. I, we probably can't do it in time for 1804. And so I started, I started talking around, you know, after you know, we got through that meeting, got, got a few ideas going on. I'm like, okay, we need to make these goals for 1810. It's too late for 1804. This was about, uh, about 11, almost a year ago, 11 months, almost a year ago. I'm like this, it's too late for 1804. Let's look at 1810, see what we can do for that. I, I kept running the meetings and they're like, okay, well, uh, you know what? Well, go ahead and form this council and you can be our chair since you're running the meetings right now. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, I have no problem with that. I've got leadership experience. So we can make that happen. And so I started driving it forward. I'm like, where, what can we do to perhaps make an additional desktop environment because XFC, XFCE is it for everybody, you know? So we were looking into stuff like that. And so it was one of those things where there was, there was this vacuum in leadership that I kind of came in and started filling. And with that, it kind of started, the project started picking up pace again. It was one of those things where somebody had to step in and make something happen. Yeah. The leader, he, he had gotten extremely busy shortly after the release of 1604. So he was MIA and there was a whole bunch of burnout for people just trying to make stuff work that they were, ha they just couldn't make it work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds like if it was a situation of the boat not being steered and people just didn't bother to like, they, they didn't really know where they needed to work on what, like what projects that they needed to continue to make, to make it uh, constantly get updates. So they just kind of like just stopped, you know, putting much effort yeah. into it because the, the main person is not putting much effort into it. So you, by yeah. you joining it, you've essentially like revitalized the, the, the project. Yeah, basically. Yeah. That's, that's fairly accurate. I, I mean, I, I don't like to, I don't like to put the complete spotlight on myself with that because it's definitely a team effort. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what happened is that it just needed somebody to start being the driving force to make it roll forward. And well, let me ask because yeah. you're not, were you, have you ever supported a distribution before this? Were you a lead in any of the other Linux distributions? No, never. So you weren't a lead in there. Were you a programmer to, that gave code to other distributions on a regular basis or anything? No, I was and see, not. <laughs> and see, that's what's fascinating to me is that a lot of times you saw this call, as I recall, you saw it in like a forum post or something where they, mm -hmm. the studio was basically, Ubuntu studio was basically failing. Instead of saying, well, I don't have the qualifications. I'm not, you know, a, a normal developer. I haven't done this before. You, you knew you had the leadership skills from your past in, in running and uh, doing a lot of leadership with business. And you applied that skill to basically revitalize this entire project. And mm -hmm. to me, that's a very important thing for us to think about is that you don't necessarily have to have, you know, this super um, 
coding ability or anything else to get involved in Linux or get involved in these projects or help revitalize these projects. You can apply skills you've learned from other trades into it. And obviously it's started to show its success with what you've done here. Yeah, that's absolutely mm -hmm. correct. It's, it's definitely a, uh, a myth that you have to know how to code. Um, it, since then, I've learned how to do Debian packaging. So I've been doing a lot of stuff with that uh, as far as getting, getting different packages into Ubuntu so that we can drive forward with the vision that we've got. So it sounds like you've had a, a pretty frenetic sort of like last, let's say, 12, 15 months. So <laughs> now that you've sort of steadied the ship a, a, a you know, steady the shipper somewhat. What's your what's your day to day duties now? What's what's the day in the life of Eric like? Well, basically, uh, I used to be uh, up until recently. I was a um, audio engineer for a church, audio video producer, actually, um, and I was in charge of running teams there. Uh, I quit for various reasons. One of them being that they I couldn't become a full time employee there. So I quit, and so now that now day day to day is getting my son off to school coming back uh working on you know doing some stuff with ubuntu studio or maybe some of my hobbies for the for that matter you know so i'll i'll sit down and i'll start getting in the chat room seeing if there's any support that needs to happen i'll get into some of the packaging see if that needs to happen um uh working with len len ovens are uh, he's the guy behind ubuntu studio controls who's done an ama some amazing work and we've, you know, doing a lot of collaboration there. Um, and between the two of us being, you know, a lot of the driving force. And uh, maybe if we, every now and then I'll write an email, a blog post like you guys saw from the January update. Uh, just, you know, trying to publicize Ubuntu Studio so that people know that, yes, we're still alive. Yes, we're still here. <laughs> so I, I think this is a really interesting project because... Um, I went back into my 30 days of Linux, which I got into Linux, which was three years ago. And that's where most people got to know my channel. So on December 6, 2016, during that 30 days of Linux challenge, the distro I was loving in the distro video I released was my favorite distro was Ubuntu Studio. Now, this is me coming after 20 years of being a Windows user. That was the one that locked me in. And it made sense because at that point, I didn't know all the applications that were available for Linux. I had nobody who was a Linux guru at the time helping me. I was doing all this on my own. And the one distro that had all of these packages that I wouldn't have otherwise found in it was Ubuntu Studio for video recording, for audio recording and things like that and making my YouTube channel, which is vastly very very was very very important to me at that time so had ubuntu studio not came along there's a good chance a lot of these applications that i utilized ended up utilizing to say hey this is going to work for me linux is going to have all the solutions i need i wouldn't have found them and maybe not have stayed uh, so that i think is very important because ubuntu studio was a very important project to bringing me into linux during that time um, but something caught my attention in your January update that I think is just amazing. And I want to get more details on it because it's called the Ubuntu Studio Installer. And this is going to provide a lot of the work that your team does, as I understand it, to other distributions, have those packages available for other distributions as well. So can you tell us about this project? Well, uh, I just wanted to uh, dispel the nomenclature there. It's other flavors of Ubuntu. Okay. Um, the reason we do that is because we cannot support anything beyond Ubuntu because like for instance, Linux Mint is a derivative. We can't we can't they can probably go ahead and try to install it and do whatever they can, but it's at their own risk. We we kind of have to draw the line somewhere. Sure. But what it does is this is something that you can install that we actually finalized yesterday. 
that you can install. And what it will do is it will bring in just be essentially the very basic components of what it means to have an Ubuntu Studio in Ubuntu Studio. And then from there, you can go ahead and run. Once you've got it installed, you can run the program and you can select the meta packages that you want, whether it's the audio suite, the video suite, graphics, publishing, any of that. Um, nice. You can also get the low, late, low latency kernel, a tweak to Grub to make the low latency kernel the top. And if you really want to get into it, you can rebrand your Ubuntu install to become Ubuntu Studio, which is just branding. It's all just aesthetics. It's, there's nothing really to that. So we, we have all that. Plus, for the first time, now this is something we just came up with like the past couple days, that you'll be able to add a backports PPA that we're providing for, which includes all of these tools. Nice. So you'll be able to essentially take, and I, I've done it today, I'm running Kubuntu with the Ubuntu Studio suite installed on top of this. So it's basically Ubuntu Studio as a toolkit, as opposed to it being, it's... Uh, ISO, it's XFCE, ISO, uh, you know, full-fledged Ubuntu flavor, which you can still get, of course. But this makes it so that you're not tethered to that ISO to have it. You can get anything you need to make it Ubuntu Studio just by installing that package and running it. That's awesome. And I love this. That, that is interesting. But is, so, sorry if I'm jumping ahead here, but is that any sort of um, prerequisite for you're not going to do a Ubuntu Studio anymore. You're just going to provide this mechanism that it can be put on top of other Ubuntus, or will you keep your own distro? We're going to keep our own uh, ISO spin, yes. Cool. Yep, it, it will still have the default XFCE install, but you're no longer locked to that. One of the things that I came up with, up with when I first started was, let's go ahead and, and add another desktop environment because not everybody likes the XFCE desktop environment. For instance, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. Well, it's okay to be wrong, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, much like Michael, I'm a KDE plasma guy. So, uh, uh, but also I don't mind playing around in GNOME every now and then. So I, I, I will play around with stuff and uh, see what, you know, where is everything, What's the strengths of this desktop environment and all that? So um, it's it's one of those things where everybody has their own workflow. But mm -hmm. so why on earth would we try to confine somebody to one desktop environment? So we were thinking about okay, maybe multiple spins of Ubuntu Studio, since you know it's the only Ubuntu flavor that's not tethered to a desktop environment per se. So I came up with that idea, and unfortunately, it it ended up being way more difficult than we had foreseen, especially for just a handful of people working on it. You know, nobody could work on it full time. So I was like, okay, let's back up, see if maybe we can just take and bolt onto an existing Ubuntu flavor like Kubuntu, Ubuntu Mate, Zoo, well, Zubuntu would be Ubuntu Studio. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, and, and it basically, it seems to be the better way to go because now it we can be both a toolkit that you can install on an existing Ubuntu install and have the ISO, which most people will prefer. When yes. do we think you're, we're going to see this? When do you guys uh, think you'll be done with it? it? Well, we just finalized it yesterday because a uh, feature freeze is coming up on February 14th, Valentine's Day. So we want to, we want to make sure we got all the nitty gritty work done 
before that. And it, Ubuntu Studio Installer has been a thing. It's just, it's been untouched for like the past eon. So we went ahead and I, I messed around with it and you know, learned some of the code behind it. Len cleaned it up because I can't code my way out of a paper bag. So he, so we got in there and it was looking and we're like, okay, this is this is something we can use. And in the future, we'd like to turn it into a Python-based package as opposed to what it is right now, which is just TK. Uh, it, we, we're just happy with it. And we're like, okay, let's go ahead and put this in 1904. So we went ahead and bugged somebody to get it uploaded into Universe. So hopefully in the next couple of days, it'll be in the daily. Oh, and nice. uh, it, it, so 1904 is when it's officially released, but we're also backporting it with our backports PPA to uh, 1804 and 1810, although 1810 is going to see its end of life uh, shortly as well. But that way we can at least, um, you know, we had initially not made 1804 uh, an LTS, but we're going to start treating it like it is because it's still based on the Ubuntu LTS. So we're just going to go ahead and support it up till uh, 2004 and then keep going from there but nice. at least we can backport some things to it yeah i like that so it, like because the the typical lts for a flavor is three years but if you can in the ubuntu studio announced that you aren't going to do it at all uh but as far as like just keep it for like a nine months so that's really nice to hear that you're going to be st turning into the two-year one because you know a lot of people are still using the lts even though they don't really know that particular information they still know it's it's based on lts so they just you know, use it anyway. It, yeah, exactly. So they assume that it's not going to be supported at all. And we're, you know, because we're already beyond the nine months for it. Right. But yeah, we, January was last month. That would have been the end of it. But we decided to go ahead and keep around the ISO. You can't get an updated like 18.0 to 1804.1 or 0.2. It's going to be always be 1804. But as soon as you run the updates, it will update itself to the proper version of Ubuntu. Okay. For that. So it, it, the ISO is going to be 1804 regular, and then the, to get the point releases, you just do the run regular install from the command line or whatever. That's correct, yes. Okay. So just I'm just curious about the backporting. When you say you're backporting the uh, the installer, are you saying that you could use the Ubuntu, Ubuntu Studio installer in uh, Kubuntu 1804? Uh, yes, as long as you install the backports PPA first. Okay. So which it, is... Yeah. Is, is it it's the backports for is it is the backports specifically for KDE or, or for Ubuntu or is it backports for Ubuntu Studio? Any Ubuntu. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So you, you can go ahead and add that PPA, install Ubuntu Studio installer if you don't already have it installed, and go ahead and run it from there. Okay. Awesome. Um, I mean, I'm definitely interested because in, I want to try the the latest versions for the installer because Ubuntu Studio is really interesting. But as as you mentioned earlier, some people don't like XFCE. I'm, I'm, I don't necessarily don't like it. I just prefer Plasma. But yeah, so having yeah. the ability to have Kubuntu with uh, the Ubuntu Studio packages is awesome. Um, it's because, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot, there's a big, nice collection of, you know, production applications in uh, Ubuntu Studio. But is there any like additional work that the Ubuntu Studio team does under the hood for increasing performance and compatibility? Yes. So there are, there are a couple of things. First of all, we have to do some uh, under under the hood configuration to enable real-time access to the memory so the memory so so that as well as the processor um, but we also um, change the swappiness so this is where it it's kind of nice to have a higher performance machine with a lot of ram mm -hmm. because um if you lower that swappiness and all of a sudden you run out of memory suddenly it's going to be dumping a whole bunch of stuff to that swap file and you don't want that to happen while you're in the middle of a production we take that and we take it from the standard down to about 
10%. If you've got 10% of your RAM left, it's going to start dumping stuff as opposed to more like, uh, I think it defaults to 15 or 20. I'm not 100% sure on that, but we do adjust that. And that's one of the default configs. And that is something that is part of the bolt-on process. You can see it, it's, we, it's going to be a new package called Ubuntu Studio Performance Tweaks. Okay. And you can go, it, it'll be in installer. You can just go ahead and click on that, click it install, and it'll do that, those tweaks. Now, there's a lot of stuff that have to do, you know, once you've done all of the tweaks that you need to do, you're, you got to do a log out and log back in in order for that to take effect because it's got to add you to the audio group as well. Okay. Um, well, just to follow up to that question, I was just curious about mm-hmm. um, like the different differentiation between uh, pro- projects that are like distros that are similar to Ubuntu Studio. So, for example, what makes Ubuntu Studio different from distros like Fedora Jam? Okay, so Fedora Jam, I have a little bit of experience with because I was do- using that before I jumped to Ubuntu Studio. Um, it's where Fedora Jam shines is, in my opinion, the KDE Plasma Desktop. Um, as far as everything else, I don't know what it does under the hood, but so I can't answer that question directly. But I can say that um, the, what we have that Fedora Jam doesn't have is basically we, what Ubuntu Studio is, is it's basically what happens when you combine the Fedora Jam, Fedora Jam and the Fedora Design Suite. So it's because we're not just studio for audio. We're not just studio for video. We've got publishing, uh, graphics, photography, all of that in there. And it's treated just as equal. The thing is, we there's a lot more. It's a lot more involved with audio because there's a lot more configuration that has to happen for audio to run properly. That, no, that makes sense. Speaking of configuration to run properly, Jack is a tool that a lot of people would like to set up. A lot of people would like to use, but it's it, it, there's a difficulty in the learning curve. And and you know, Ryan and myself have gone to using some scripts that I don't know if Ryan came up with them or somebody else came up with them. Um, but to actually get Jack set up. Uh, rumor is that Ubuntu Studio is working on incorporating a simpler interface. Tell us about that. So we've already done that. That was released in 1810. It's called Ubuntu. Well, we actually had it before. It was Ubuntu Studio Controls, but we released the newer version in 1810. And what that does is it is it does the configuration for you. Um, I've used QJack control and it is convoluted. You have to know exactly what the system is doing behind the scenes to know what that's doing. Ubuntu Studio Controls does most of that for you and then just gives you some simple dropdowns and checkboxes to get get all that configured. And it's understandable. It's easier to read than say QJack control, which is, has all of the, it's basically the kitchen sink for Jack. Um, but Ubuntu Studio Controls takes that, does a lot of that for you, does the stuff that you wouldn't normally need to touch. And then it also allows you to adjust the CPU governor. You can set which, if you have more than one audio controller in your system, you can set which one's going to be the primary. And then you can set whichever USB devices you have plugged into, which would be acting like the primary in that case. So, because Jack won't normally see it that way. You can set your latency. You can set your uh, all of that. You know, you of course, if you're doing real time stuff, you want that latency as minimal as possible. It allows you to set that, and then also just below that, there are checkboxes for whether or not you want pulse audio running, uh, whether or not you want uh, to be able to Im- it to immediately. This is actually the first time for any Jack GUI immediately recognize any USB devices that are hot plugged. Wow, so, that's awesome. And it, it will recognize those immediately and it configures Jack to do all that. And it 
it, you can run multiple audio devices, multiple USB audio devices at once, so long as your computer is capable of doing it. And that's the first time anybody's done anything like that for a GUI in Jack. Otherwise, if you're talking a huge command line for starting Jack in the terminal. So this does that for you, and it simplifies the process. Basically, in my opinion, allows anybody to get set up with Jack and whatnot. And are these some of uh, uh, any of these things going to be something that will be available to other flavors of Ubuntu? All of this stuff will be? Yes. As a matter of fact, yes. So when you install wow, Ubuntu Studio Installer, it will install Ubuntu Studio Controls. And the late, as long as you've got the PPA, if you, you install the Backports PPA, it will install that latest version as well. Now, you said Ubuntu Installer is available now, but your latest iteration is coming out. If You don't want to go necessarily, if you're in a different distro, you're not using Ubuntu Studio and install Ubuntu studio tools now right you want to wait till you guys do your latest release or is that available right now uh theoretically we, we you know we don't we've still in the testing process on it but um the backports ppa is available now if, for people who want to install it because it's just it's amazing that what you just described there is the dream that i've had for a long time <laughs> the ability to control jack through a simple gui in any distro would just be amazing because it's well not any distro any ubuntu uh base or flavor it's just one of those things that while i can get it all running you know using jack mm -hmm. and all the scripts and things like that it's still a major pain but having mm -hmm. that interface there to simplify that and do you know your general what most general people running a consumer level studio would want to mess with without having to learn audio engineering is a dream you know it's yeah. just amazing the one thing it won't do is the audio routing which is why patchage is still available but i have been working very hard with um Falk tx aka Felipe kaleo of uh kx studio and getting in getting Carla nice. into Ubuntu so that nice. we would have access to that as well, which is not only the uh, it's it's an amazing um, plugin host, but it's also a great uh, patch uh, patch bay, so you can route between applications that way, and that way we can release the extremely outdated, buggy, and no longer developed patchage from our default install because it's really a buggy and too no longer developed and that's kind of a kind of a no-go for a lot of people cool so we've all seen the youtube videos with regard to video editing in linux um, and whether we agree with them or not they're out there for people to form an opinion on so on, on a more generic note in what ways is linux ahead of the competition with regard to audio and video production and what areas do you think still need working on now you're talking to an old Mac guy, so <laughs> I, there's a lot that they need to go on. Like for instance, um, that I would say, um, you know, being having used Final Cut Studio, having or Final Cut Pro, the newer version as well, and having used um, Adobe Premiere, I've used that in the past. It seems as though we don't have anything that quite fits that bar i would say the closest to that would be Caden live if we're talking open source otherwise you're talking closed source stuff like uh lightworks and stuff like that uh or even a davinci resolve would be a good one but um 
those are closed source. A lot of uh, Linux purists don't want to use that kind of thing. And those are things we can't include in, say, Ubuntu Studio. Uh, so as far as video editing goes, we are definitely behind the curve. As far as audio goes, though, I think we are on par, if not ahead. And reason being is that we have access to so many of the op free and open source plugins, such as uh Calf the Calf Studio gear plugins. We have Ardour and uh, those kinds of things. If you want to go uh, closed source to that, there, you know, Ardour's derivative Harrison Mix bus is available. Uh, I got it on a screaming hot deal for like 20 bucks for a Labor Day. So it was amazing, you know, nice. to be able to get that caliber of uh, audio for that. But it's just, you know, people are starting to notice uh, Linux for audio. Um, I believe it was, let's see, Noah, what you use uh, got released for linux recently uh i played with reaper my my yeah. still my go-to my go-to editor is still uh is still audacity just and okay. it's not it's not necessarily that I, i'm not here to say that audacity is better than any of the other ones anything like that even up to and including reaper um, they each have their own advantages i just i know how to do everything in audacity i know where all the tools are i know where all the shortcuts mm -hmm. are so just where I'm most comfortable, that's really what it amounts. And its recovery is absolutely fantastic. So the computer could die in a fire, and I'm pretty sure my files would still be there somehow. <laughs> yeah, our, uh, you know, we, and we include uh, Ubuntu, in Ubuntu Studio, uh, the audio package, obviously, we include Audacity by default. So that's you know one of the things, too, is that Audacity is definitely a go-to for a lot of people inside and outside of the Linux community because it's uh, cross-platform on Windows and uh, Mac as well. So it's one of those nice tools that you see just about everywhere. But yeah, so, Linux is definitely getting, getting noticed for its audio capabilities, for sure. So do you still use Mac for video editing, or have you switched completely to Linux workflow? At this point, I've switched completely to Linux for workflow because I no longer work nice. where I was working. <laughs> and because where I was working, we kind of had to collaborate on a lot of stuff. Me and uh, my coworker would have to collaborate on a lot of uh, Final Cut Pro projects. So we would basically be shifting stuff back and forth so that I had to use Final Cut Pro at that time. Gotcha. So since you're into audio and video production, which a lot of people are interested in as a hobby or profession, can you give us a list of your favorite applications to use? So if somebody's, you know, new to switching their workflow to Linux, what are some ones that they should check out? So uh, the, the, I would say for video editing, you, you really want to use... Um, Caden Live. That would be, you know, it's got a bad rap from the past. It was always crashy, but now if you play around with it and if you learn, if you learn the intricacies, it's really good. For audio, I would say uh, Ardour or Audacity, like uh, Noah's just mentioning. Or uh, there's also, you know, the beauty about Ardour is that you can use all sorts of audio plugins with that. Uh, the CAF Studio Gear uh, plugins are amazing. It's probably some of the best developed plugins for Linux. That's, that's all available out there uh, as, far, as far as that goes, because there's a lot of people like to use Waves plugins, um, which um, they don't make those for Linux. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get that in. But on the other hand, one thing that's beautiful about that is we have Carla, which can act like uh, Waves, Waves Live for that. And um, you can use the Cast Studio Gear plugins as well as any plugin. And it's got the ability to also run uh, VST plugins, including if you install the Wine Bridges, um, be able to use Windows VST plugins. So it's, it's, it's one of those things. Those are the go-tos for me, um, uh, especially in, in terms of... Um, 
you know, using our doer, I use our doer a lot, even just for live stuff. Like what you're hearing me through right now is through our doers processing with the Cap Studio Gear plugins. Nice. Now talking about that same question, but moving into the hardware side, a lot of people go out there and they just want to buy, you know, the USB interface that they see most maybe YouTubers or Twitch streamers are utilizing. And that's generally your consumer level, like Scarlet's and things like that. You can have a varying experience, as I found out, with different USB interfaces in Linux, although it's gotten much better. So mm -hmm. I think it would be interesting. Can you give us a rundown of the USB interfaces or mixers or things that you recommend or utilize yourself? So based on my previous uh, work, I kind of got into Behringer a lot because the Behringer X32 works great as it, the X as long as you have the XUSB interface, it works great. I was I kind of became a Behringer guy, and um, with with the uh, X32, as long as it's got the XUSB interface installed on it, you can use all 32 channels inside of Linux. You can both re record, you can draw from, you can use your plugins, reroute it back to the X32. So as far as mixers go, uh, Behringer X32, and also therefore the Midas M32 series works really well under Linux. Also, um, what I use personally in this setup, for instance, my microphone is being driven by a Behringer Euphoria UMC 404 HD, which is a four in, four out uh, USB audio interface. Um, I use to control it, doing my mixing, a um, Behringer X-Touch Mini. Uh, all of the X-Touch series will work cleanly on Linux, in my experience, and it, it works great. So there's just things like that. Uh, and not only that, but the Behringer interfaces, in my opinion, um, are just good quality and uh, of, uh, like, for instance, the Scarlet Focusrite and whatnot. So that's, uh, in, in my opinion, there's cheaper ways of doing stuff that you typically would do for that purpose. Now, I want to I want to ask because when I got the Behringer 404 which is a while ago, they it worked amazing once I switched to Jack, but it did not work with Pulse, meaning when I would run my mic through it, I'd sound like Mickey Mouse. Yeah. It had something to do with latency or something along those lines, I suspect. Um, it's a sampling but, rate, right? Yeah, that's a sample rate issue right there. Okay. So with that, is that still an issue today with Paul? So when we recommend this equipment, you probably, if you're going to go buy it, unlike the Scarlet, which you can get away with utilizing out of the box, the Behringer's and some of the other higher end pieces of equipment, you're probably going to want to switch to Jack, right? Yeah, I, I don't use any of my equipment without Jack. Okay. And not only that, but like we mentioned before in Ubuntu Studio, it's becoming much simpler to do that because of this implication with Ubuntu Studio controls. Nice. Uh, so let's get back to Ubuntu Studio as uh, talk about like the newest version coming out soon with 1904 in April. So what are some changes that we look forward to? You know, a separate. Obviously, we're all incredibly excited for the installer system, uh, but mm -hmm. like specifically for Ubuntu Studio as the distro itself, uh, what, do you, what are some changes we could look forward to? Well, you can look for the latest versions of all of the regular packages that you would see, for instance, like uh, GIMP and all that. Um, we have the, finally, we are getting what it would be. Let's see. CAF Studio Gear 90.1 was released back in July, and we finally got that put. I finally, you know, I worked with the Studio Gear people to get that pushed. Um, into Debian because we take that from Debian down into Ubuntu. Nice. So there are certain packages that we have to do that with. For instance, Ardour is one of those. So it's going to be at the latest version, which is uh, 5.12 still. They're working on newer stuff. Uh, there's a lot of um, 
newer ver- there, you have the latest version of Ubuntu Studio controls installer kind of uh, all the latest stuff that you need to get up and running um, as far as the packages go anything that is included in Ubuntu is going to be uh, the latest versions as long as it came down from Debian properly or is in Ubuntu universe properly so it's it, it's a mixed bag um, but at the same time it's I think you're gonna like it it's I like it already. I've been using it for about a week or two now, just as it is. And there's some good stuff coming uh, down the pike for that. So I, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with it myself. Eric, if people want to get involved with Ubuntu Studio, if people want to participate and they want to experience the success that you're experiencing and say, Hey, I want to become a part of that. That seems really cool. What would you suggest? Well, uh, our biggest thing right now, what we would love to have is people more involved with packaging um, we're involved with helping out within our IRC room, our IRC chat room, which, by the way, uh, we are launching soon. Uh, and I've got a, in testing right now a Telegram bridge to that. So people who have Telegram can join our IRC chat room and start using uh, and, and start helping out that way and providing support for people who don't necessarily uh, uh, who use Ubuntu Studio but don't necessarily no you know just need help people who need help right there's also uh if you want to get involved another way is um just join the developer discussion give us some ideas we would love to hear them um now of course our scope is fairly narrow because you know there's very few of us and we can only do so much but uh and not only that but in terms of development ubuntu studio is probably the you know the the one since we don't have to worry about it a desktop environment we fo- have less to focus on so there's that we need help with documentation so people who want to update the wiki and get that d- done we need help with that what you can do is for that is go to ubuntustudio.org slash contribute and that'll show you various ways you can help out um, join the mailing list join the chat room get involved and that way we can uh we can point you in the right direction um biggest thing is tell us what you're interested in doing and it's you know it's it's the door is open you're welcome nice sounds like good fun talking of good fun we have (laughs) one question that we like to ask our guests and that is are you a gamer am i a gamer well i would say yes um nice i I have a seven-year-old son and he loves to play minecraft so we play minecraft Mm -hmm. together um and we so i yeah we'll do that we'll also um you know jump on i'll play civilization six sometimes and um i am a bit of a flight sim geek so i do have my flight sim nice nice and you know i am actually a former pilot so i do like to try to keep that kind of skill up to date and whatnot so so what would you say is your favorite game that you'd like to play uh, if I pl- if I'm gonna play something just for just killing time, I'm gonna probably jump into Minecraft or Creative Verse or something like that. All right, uh, cool. I I would love to get more back into uh, it, the uh, flight simming, especially now that they have virtual air traffic control stuff out there. You know, mm. actual humans running air traffic control online and stuff. It's so 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 flight simulators seems something that I could get into because I'm pretty sure you couldn't have a pixelated flight simulator game, could you? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sure you could Sam. it depends on your attitude yeah, that's all <laughs> uh 
I mean, there's flight. Uh, you could go to the Microsoft Flight Sim 10, which runs on Steam, but it doesn't run on Linux. But there is X Plane, which I prefer because it's just a more realistic sim. But you need you need something that's got horsepower to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. The X Plane, if you check it out, it's a really cool, uh, really cool simulator. There's also a bunch of YouTube uh, videos about it where people have like these their own custom games that they do inside of X Plane. And mm -hmm. uh, it's just pretty interesting to check out. Uh, but also, I want to thank uh, Eric for coming onto the show, and uh, especially for your work that you're doing with Ubuntu Studio and the Ubuntu Studio team. I want to thank you all for doing the work you're doing. As, you know, I'm super excited for the installer. Yes, uh, I can't wait to play with uh, the Ubuntu Studio installer with the uh, with Kubuntu and everything else. Is so excited. Uh, so I want to give you also a mm -hmm. special recommendation for, I mean, recognition for the uh, the important aspect of just keeping Ubuntu Studio alive, because not only is Ubuntu Studio very important and it's going to be even more important in the future. It was it was something that we all like, kind of like sat. We were looking. It was sad to see that it was kind of dying and to be to be revitalized to the point where now not only is it you know back and you know in full force. But also and the even more being involved with the other flavors because that's like a huge, a huge bonus that a lot of the users are going to be enjoying with being able to use Jack without, you know, uh, putting needles in your eyes. That kind of yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in collaboration. So I've been working with the other flavor leads to try to make sure that the experience that they have is going to work. In fact, I just went through all of the flavors just yesterday, making sure that installer was going to work and look exactly awesome. how it should. And it, it, for the most part, is working pretty dang well. Nice. nice. Oh, great to hear it. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, Eric. Uh, it, was very, it was great yeah. having you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me anytime, guys. Thank you. So Makulu Linux is now in the news and they have a brand new core version core released out there. Now I wasn't familiar with Makulu Linux up to this point, but the more I started reading about it, the more interested I got. So Makulu differentiates itself by having its own base that they spent two years to develop. So this isn't something where they just kind of take an Ubuntu and then slap on some different themes and things. They created their own base here. They have a couple of repos. They have the Makulu repo and they have the Debian repo to provide kind of a solid stable core to build upon. But they also have several iterations of this operating system, the core, the flash, and the Lindox variations to try out. But the core is one of the latest ones to get some updates in there. So on this, it is a rolling release. Uh, the core is forked from XFCE. You get the latest kernel 4.19, it's a 64-bit architecture, but some of the unique things about it when I was playing with it is their options for dual menu, um, kind, kind of more of their options on the desktop, how they set everything up. It's a very interesting workflow, and it takes XFCE to a whole new level that I hadn't seen in a long time for somebody customizing XFCE because, you know, the, the general complaint is XFCE out of the box isn't the prettiest thing in the world, but it is very customizable, very beautiful. You know I love XFCE, but what they've done with it is I would say you would have a hard time kind of realizing at first that you're even in an XFCE desktop environment. They have so much customization on top of it. So I was very impressed with their iteration of XFCE on there. I like the driver support scripts that they have included in their base as well because, you know, those NVIDIA users out there are going to need some help getting drivers installed. <laughs> uh, I like their software center uh, that they have. They give you options when you click on it. You can use the Mint software center. You can use the GNOME software center. You can use Synaptic in there to get the packages that you want. 
And they did something really interesting here, which reminded me very much of Opera, which is also their default browser. And that is their gesturing system. So you can set up gestures on your desktop that if you have a touch screen, you can do it with your finger. Or if you have a mouse, you can set it off with the mouse with the mouse with a certain keystroke. Whereas if you make a certain gesture, like uh, I don't know, a J or an O, maybe that opens Opera, or you do a J on your desktop and it'll open something else. They should so, make D's where it opens Destination Linux podcast. I love that idea. If they do that, they may become the official flavor. No. <laughs> um, but this is, uh, I think it's a very interesting project. And like I said, I hadn't heard of it before, but um, there's also some news that it may be a challenge for Biddle, Zeb, you were telling me about. Yep, it certainly is. Um, we were sort of struggling to, to come up with what we were going to uh, choose for the um, for the challenge this week. So we just quickly looked at uh, that that site called DistroWatch. And we, we noticed that Eric Raymer, who's the distributor or is the developer of this, has put out the new the new version of core now what i find really interesting about this is i've been following this guy since like i don't know um makulu 7 and he was uh, ubuntu based but he was always there was always something that didn't work with ubuntu something that didn't work with debian which is why he's taken a long long time to get where he where he is now um, and something that you can do within each of the core flash and lindos and, and on the lindos side of it if you think um, Ferran OS and Zorin, and then add another thirty different types of themes that you can have that make it look like look like um, Windows. But mm -hmm. what he's actually done is within each section, you can decide to have a home version, a gamer version, a developer version, or just a basic version. So you can tailor it. Other than those three distributions, you can tailor it to what you want. Now, what? Eric, for me, does really, really good is he has a fantastic design flair. He's not worried about how heavy, because believe it or not, XFCE, um, Makulu Core starts up with 1.4 gig because he doesn't care about whether it's light. He wants it fast. He wants it pretty. And he wants all these amazing features. And as you alluded to there, there's about three different types of menus and some of them aren't even obvious until you read the, 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 the release notes and you put your mouse down to the left-hand corner and click, and all of a sudden this, this menu appears. Mm -hmm. There's another option where you can have that gnome circular menu. Yeah, it's called gnome pie. Oh, it's, yeah. That's the one, and he's got that in there. And then he's brought back um, an awesome, no, AWN toolbar mm -hmm. that does all sorts of other weird things. And he's got, it's almost like mini ICE applications where you hover your mouse over it and up comes a mini Facebook that you could sign into. As soon as you move your mouse away, it disappears again. So he's done things like Facebook and Twitter and Telegram and Google Mail. And once you've signed in, you just hover your mouse over there and up pops that application you can quickly look at. Very, very clever stuff. The only caveat I've got is in two years' time, it'll be all changed again because he can't stick with one design and make it perfect. He's one of these guys who gets 95% of the way, happy with it, and all of a sudden his brain goes, oh, I've got this idea, and he's off. Well, yeah, that's, that, that can happen. Uh, but that's things that they're doing now with, like, the core is really interesting. Like, they, like as you said, there's multiple menus. There's, like, multiple hot corners that activate menus, and there's the, the gnome pie, and then there's the, they have, they have, like, two two docks that also are menu systems. Like, it's it's definitely a very interesting approach and it's uh and especially with the, the 
gestures. It says that if you want to, you can basically use it with as little keyboard as possible. Um, so that's an interesting thing. I mean, I personally love to use the keyboard more than I, you know, the mouse, but uh, it's very interesting, especially like just a very innovative approach. So moving on to more uh, innovation, GNOME 3.32 is giving users more control. Now, there's a first, surely, because we've always complained <laughs> that GNOME takes stuff away from users. So they've obviously been listening to some of their users and, 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 and putting some of this feedback in there because GNOME is looking to give users greater control over installed application permissions in GNOME 3.32. Um, to do this, there will be a new applications panel where users will be able to better control locally installed applications. And they're particularly happy about their Flatpak implementation because the adoption of Flatpak means that we have additional application permission settings that we need to expose. And these include things like microphone and camera access, as well as able to access USB devices. This list could grow in the future to include things like access to contacts and calendar data. Now, if that wasn't enough, they're also making um, other enhancements to 3.32. I think they're changing the way the GUI looks. Um, and and it's, is this available now to put into your GNOME s system? Because this is one of the things that I always find slightly frustrating as a, as a generic user. Yeah, there's this great 3.32, but I'm on Ubuntu. Yeah, I mean, this comes out in March, so yeah. it's not out yet. But if you want to be one of the first to grab it, you should be on Arch, just saying. Well, anyway, so there's uh, there's actually a, a thing you can get. I forgot what it's called, but there's like a, a package you can try out uh, GNOME 3.32 in like its own specific you know test case alpha stage, or it's actually a beta stage, but it's like it's a package they provide for you. It's all it is is just to use GNOME 3.32, so you don't get like a package repo or anything. Um, so if you do want to try it out, you can do it that way. But it will be, you know, in March, uh, March thirteenth. I'm think I'm pretty sure that's the, the day they're going to release it. And the the thing that I like the fact that they're doing the permission system because it's really it's a really cool idea of yeah. having the you know I don't want an application to always have access to my microphone or my camera or whatever. So it's really nice to be able to decide whether or not an application gets that choice. So like it's and they said that, that it works on uh, flat packs and their and regular repo apps. So that's cool. Uh, I am kind of curious if they were have any intention to plan to add snaps or app images to those permission systems. That'd be really nice. Uh, but it is really cool to see that they're doing that. Yeah, this reminds me of what you experience on your phone. So when you install an application on your phone, you know, a lot of times it will ask you, do you want to give permissions to your microphone? Do you want to give permissions to this? And then you can go into the settings later and turn those permissions off because maybe at that point you were okay with it having access to your microphone and being able to access to your camera, but you don't need it for that anymore. So you could go in and turn those different functionalities off. It's right. kind of just another layer of user security and privacy control that they're adding in there. And I think it's a great idea. Also, a great thing that's happening is a new update to IP Fire. 2.21 core update 127 and uh, I, it's a this is the first release of the year and it's based the it's a if you're not familiar IP fire is an open source firewall solution and it's a distro that allows you to do uh, firewall structure where and also it offers a range of security tools 
and it's it's designed to like provide an easy way to set up and use like a web interface to manipulate and navigate the the overall the firewall setup. So it's like it's kind of like an edge device distribution. They use uh, the like the update for this particular release is that they updated the Squid package for 4.5 to make the web proxy faster and more secure. They've also done uh, improvements to uh, adding a DNS forwarding feature that they've extended that to be more flexible and it now accepts uh, host names instead of just IP addresses because it would be sometimes be difficult to uh, get every IP address to every server you wanted to do to, to allow the access to and this way you can use a host name to just do like wildcard and so that makes it a lot easier to handle. Uh, they've also updated their improvements to the various uh, applications that provided like uh, libvertd and uh, clamav uh, and a variety of the other things, other fixes, and you know stuff like updating the kernel modules and that kind of thing. Has anyone here used the IP Fire before? I've played with it. I uh, I wanted to. I've been looking to see if there is a, a distribution that could replace what Microtech is doing for me in the uh, in the hardware space. And so I've looked at you know obviously PFSense. I've looked at IP Fire. Uh, I've looked at uh, Untangle. Um, there's a lot of them that are out there. IP Fire is is great. I'm not sure that I would go as far as to say that it tops uh, PFSense. And so, and then the other issue is that, and this is a, a big deal with a lot of these is uh, if you're doing any sort of contracts with uh, like government or, or, uh, or large state entities, even they oftentimes will require that you purchase a hardware device, right? They don't, you can't, you can't say, well, I bought this computer on eBay and I threw IP fire on it. And, and so here's the firewall we're going to sell you. Like it doesn't work like that. They need a specification sheet and they have to be able to vet the manufacturer and all that, those kinds of things. And uh, right now, PFSense is able to do that. And IP fire is, to the best of my knowledge, isn't. But at home, I actually, for the last three or four months, I was running IP fire and it's fantastic. Nice. I haven't actually tried it myself, but I do look forward to doing it because I, it's, it is something I would be wanting to do, but just haven't had the, the, uh, it's on the long list for me too. Yeah, exactly. There is a new operating system deployment tool, and it is called ZNX. Now, ZNX is an interesting take on the idea of non-filthy dual booting. So let's say you have a reason to use more than one Linux distribution, and I've actually been in that boat myself because there's some tools that only ran on Ubuntu, and I, at the time I was a primarily a Fedora user. And so I was actually dual booting, but I wasn't filthy dual booting. I was just dual booting two versions of Linux. The right way. Right. And uh, so here is the issue with dual booting. The issue with dual booting any operating system is that essentially, one, you have to know ahead of time how many operating systems you're going to have on your hard drive, and you have to allocate space accordingly, and you have to plan your partitions and your tables and all of that. Now, even if you get all of that right, you still have some security concerns because obviously it's just another the other operating systems just show up as additional partitions to the operating system you're currently booted into. And so there's a security concern. So ZNX actually seeks to fix all of that. And essentially what they're going to do is, or what they've done, I should say, is they have created essentially image files that store the entire operating system. And then there is a base layer that allows you to boot into those individual image files. So the advantage of that is threefold. First of all, you have the security you have the security advantage of isolation because the image files cannot talk to other image files. The second concern is it requires no pre-planning or advantage is that it requires no pre-planning because you can add additional image operating systems as you want to. And then the third is that any one image file is non-destructive to any other image file. So if you 
completely botch one or click on a wrong button or do anything. You don't have to worry about, oh, crap, I just wiped out my master boot record and now this thing can't boot because that operating system exists inside of its own little house. Uh, so it's a really, really fantastic tool. Now, this I, I, I spent some time researching it. I was not able to actually deploy it to check it out. Um, but it is a very, very exciting uh, technology that I think if it takes off, and I, I suspect that it will, if it takes off, it will become the de facto way to boot multiple operating systems on a computer. I have no doubt. Question then with regards to how it keeps those ISO files and maintains those ISO files. Mm -hmm. So it's not like every time you boot into it, you start it again, you've got a brand no. new image. It's file. persistent. So you just use it exactly the same as you would any other operating system for so updates and software installs and all the rest of it. Would that um, preclude you from having being a separate data partition that these distros could simulate to so to the best of my understanding if you have and again i haven't tried it but my, mm. to the best of my understanding if you create a the the partition is for the base zenx operating system if you were to create an additional partition or let's say let's say for the ease of simplicity of explaining let's say i had a second hard drive that was plugged into the system each one of those individual operating systems would be able to see those second partitions or second hard disks and hardware. It just wouldn't be able to see into other image files. Right. And again, that's nice. my understanding based on a couple of hours of research. I've not actually tried this. I can't tell you for sure. It, sounds well, sounds like it does sound great because also one of the things that when, you're, when you've got hepatitis like I have and you go into a distro and you say, don't mess with this, this and that, you then suddenly find out you boot to your old ISO and you're waiting there for 90 seconds because the last one formatted swap. And then you've got to go in and change the UI, UUID again on FS tab. So if each of your little ISOs had their own swap file, then that, as you say, that overwriting stuff could never happen. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the way they describe it is ZNX follows the concept of app images, which is the software isn't installed, but it's deployed. So you have all these various ISOs that you can throw on there, but instead of it being, you know, once like in a VM where once you get rid of that, uh, ISO, unless you permanently install it, it's gone. This would keep it so that your files and changes and things that you make are still there when you would boot back into that ISO. So you could load multiple ISOs. It's going to give you a menu when you reset or when you reboot of which ISO you want to boot to, but you'd still have access to your files and changes and things that you made afterwards without having to do all those separate partitions like you normally would. And does it does it have any kind of like uh, overhead with like, you know, and it's not virtualizations, but if it does it have any kind of the overhead because of the Z and the Z and X like, like platform? I would assume that there is a little bit of overhead because the 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 base system is having to essentially open up that image file and then pres and then there has to be a translation translation layer so that the hardware can talk you know to this file through right. that through that base operating system but i would imagine that it's probably no more than than you would get like so kvm we can see almost no uh almost no degradation in performance and that's pure virtualization this isn't even virtualization this is just i'm taking data and essentially i have virtual hard drives that i'm i'm accessing that's as close as we get to virtualizing and all of that is probably on an ssd so i would bet you there's almost no measurable performance degradation okay that's very cool well as long as it's going to be as easy to use as VirtualBox, because normally these types of things come with a you know a half a page of manual that ryan mm -hmm. and i'll never read so we we never get to understand them so guilty yeah, watch this one with interest 
Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's, that's this really cool tool. I've, as the first I've heard of it, as far as like, you know, the, the full details about it. So I'm, uh, very interested in it. Uh, but I would like to point out to people who are, uh, just using it, for, use, wanting to dual boot, but they, they have a, like a desktop computer. I happen to have made a video where I did a product review of a piece of hardware that allows you to dual boot or multi boot easily by just clicking a button on a different drive. And I'll have that linked in the show notes. All right, how about I give some food out to the starving NVIDIA Team Green users out there? I'm going to give you something that you can get excited about because I know right now you're all feeling extraordinarily jealous about the Radeon 7. So how about there for fans fans (laughs) of Team Green, you'll be happy to know you have a utility to help you with your proprietary drivers called Green with Envy. And this tool is a very nicely done GUI that allows you to manage various performance attributes and even overclock your GPU. So hopefully you can keep up. So if you utilize this tool, uh, you'll also have the ability to set tailored profiles. This really is a cool tool, all joking aside. Um, You can set up custom profiles. So if you're gaming or you're video rendering or maybe you're shooting videos, and you want your fan speeds to go lower, you don't want that fan noise in the background, you can switch to these different profiles within there so that you know it, it meets the needs of what you're doing. And if you're gaming, you may want those fans to spin up really high to keep your card cool and things like that. So this takes a lot of what users in those other OSs get, some of the tools they get to play with, and brings it into the Linux world here in a much easier to use GUI. Obviously, these things are available to change, you know, independently, but require, in a lot of cases, a lot of terminal uh, modification, a lot of terminal usage to get those modifications in. So some of the features of this tool is general GPU stats, power, ability to modify the power, uh, the clocks, the GPU temperatures, and like we said, the fan speed there, and it can be installed via Flatpak. So this isn't one of those tools where you're going to have to spend the next 40 minutes trying to figure out how to get it installed. Very simple flat pack there, and you can start playing with this right now for Team Green. Sounds sounds pretty good, but I think they should have called it um, Eyes Red Raw because that means that I can take my 1070 Ti, tweak it, and nearly beat the Radian 7 because the Radian 7 is only just holding its own against the 2080. Um, so oh, this is so really lame and not true. It's a really, well, it is true. That's not true. Barely holding to a 1080. My Vega 64 competes with a 1080 all day long. You're listening to all of the nonsense hype out there that's looking at one factor and utilizing pre-made tools to benchmark the card. You'll see in my video next week the true story of the Radeon 7. Yeah, and also the Radio 7 you need, to, you need to speak to Wimpy. Because he's got very you might be referring to the, not the 1080, but the 2080 is comparable. Yeah, maybe you mean 2080. But yeah, I is that what you mean? Yeah. Oh, I, I thought heard. you said 1080. Okay. No, I, I could I can tweak my 1070 Ti and make it that much closer to the Vega 7 without spending all that money on it or your Radiant. So 7. you're saying your 1070 is comparable to the 2080? Once I've tweaked it up to the to the hilt, yeah. Wow, it's that's gonna, incredible. I've never heard that before. It's going to get close. Have a word with Wimpy. He's got some very interesting views on there for you. But no, it's a well, great tool. he might tool. be wrong. And it was... <laughs> Wimpy, you're wrong. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can see another little uh, Ryan note appearing at the bottom of Ubuntu Mate here. It's okay to be wrong, Wimpy. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but it's good to see that you're, you're giving some love back to uh, Team Green where you started your days. 
There you go. There is actually something that's interesting that's similar to this, uh, but the reason I'm bringing it up is called it's called something like Tux Clocker, and it's, it's it does the same kind of thing, and it currently only works with NVIDIA as well. However, unlike this one, it seems like it's specifically for NVIDIA. Uh, the Tux Clocker is also being adding uh, AMD support too. So onto some hardware news. Um, and there's another company here that I've not heard of in the UK. So you guys will have to tell me, is this a US-based company? Um, but it's a company giving some love out there for Linux. So ZA Reason, or ZA Reason, as you guys would call it, um, have provided um, some Linux gaming machines. Now, looking through some of these specifications here, when you first look at it, it doesn't look like that much. Um, and again, you'll have to forgive me because I'm not really into the game building. Um, but the fact that it is providing you with a base machine that is proven to be Linux compatible. So all of the components that they're going to be offering you um, will be working uh, with this machine. Um, the company started in 2006 with the first desktop build. And in 2007, they opened for business uh, where they've built R&D labs, served small and large companies, universities, and individual users. Their main focus is on building systems for Linux, which can only be um, really, really good. Now, um, I think I'm right in saying, uh, Noah, that you keep an eye on sort of like the latest innovations coming through and the, and the latest stuff in the Linux world. Um, is this good news for, for Linux? Is this, we need more of this? Yes, I, I think so. Where I, where I fall down in, in hardware for Linux is I like, I see that as one of the places where there is no such thing as too much competition because everybody gets one little aspect, right? And nobody has it perfect up to and including the big names like Dell, right? There's, there's little tiny things uh, from system 76 is a reason Dell doesn't matter which one you, you pick purism, all of them do something well and something not well. But what you, what you find cumulatively speaking is that when one company does something like system 76 worked on this, uh, this, uh, this, bootstrapping thing to be able to get their the operating system rapidly deployed and now other companies like dell have picked that up and dell contributed to creating this firmware update thing so that the firmware updates for laptops could be distributed through a package manager and now every every other company is picking that up so you know d full disclaimer do i watch the gaming systems that come out from you know these various distributions probably your uh, Hardware manufacturers? No, probably not as closely as I do day-to-day -day computing. Certainly not as close as I check out laptops. Um, but Zerizen has established themselves as a, a very, a very capable competitor in the market space, and I have I'm glad to see that they're continuing to innovate because right now I don't know that there is anybody out there that is making a Linux-specific game machine. Right. I think there are places that are looking for powerful production machines, powerful database or or uh, or calculation machines, certainly powerful laptops. Uh, this would be the first Linux specific gaming machine that I think I've heard of. That's what I love about this and why I wanted to highlight this story. I want to highlight anybody who's doing these Linux specific hardware machines because I think it's very important. Generally, when someone like myself who has been doing this since I was a kid um, building computers, I'm not looking at going and buying something that's pre-built. But most people aren't in my camp, right? A lot of people just want to go get a machine. They want it to have everything to work. 
And what that means right now is you're going to go and get one of these iBuy powers or something like that from a gaming site. And it's going to have, you're going to be paying for that Windows 10 license. It's going to have Windows 10 on it. And the first thing you're going to do, of course, is make sure you wipe that out and put Linux on it. In this case, you get to support Linux right from the start and you don't have some of the additional costs for licensing and things like that built into there. And what I like that they did here specifically is they have a lot of options that you can choose. So when you get your machine and you turn it on, you don't have to sit there and, you know, wipe it immediately or wait for Windows to finish updating or its initial setup or anything because you're going to have Linux on there, but you can have Ubuntu option, a Mint option, OpenSUSE, Debian, Fedora, Ubuntu, CentOS. So you've got all of these awesome options that you can choose. So the moment you boot it up, you're going to see that. And you've got the customization ability there. And it starts as low as $799, which is a very good price for a gaming laptop on there, depending on what you want to add into it. But you, they also have laptops, desktops, servers, and other gear in there. And one of the things I saw in their gear section I thought was pretty cool was you can get yourself a little stuffed Tux doll so you can make sure your kids are raised right around Tux. Mm-hmm. Nice. The, the thing I liked about it was you, you're quite right. You could start for as little as uh, $800. Um, but depending on what your budget is, without having to mess around with the base machine, you can soon end up with a $6,000 powerhouse with absolutely everything in there, including, um, you know, a couple of uh, NVIDIA GTX 2080s, uh, 128 gig of RAM. So no matter what your budget is, staying with that one box, which is on all of these, on all of these sort of like site builders where you can go and build your own PC, you get a box that you like and you go, right, I'll add this and I'll add that and I'll add that. And you, and you say, give me the price. And it goes, uh-uh, you've not now got the right type of box. You need to go and, and oh, God, so you go and change your box. And now this bit of kit won't fit. That bit of kit won't fit. But in every type of configuration I tried on this system, it went, yep, yeah, that's fine. Here's your price. So nice. they've, they're providing this box that seems to cover all scenarios, whether it's water-cooled or um, blower-cooled. So obviously that is a very good base unit to start from, and that's what caught my eye about this particular. Zareason, did you call it? Yeah, Zareason. Zareason. So there's a that's Zareason you need to go and buy it. I love it. The open source community accomplishes some amazing things. And it's fun to take a look at how certain companies leverage open source and Linux and everything. Um, so at, at FOSDEM this year, there was a presentation discussing how open source is being used by some of those popular streaming services and specifically Netflix. So Netflix has a huge job of delivering streaming content to millions and millions of people. And to accomplish this, they need a reliable uh, infrastructure and they chose an open source infrastructure with FreeBSD. So Netflix built their own in-house CDN or content delivery network using custom hardware, which can handle 40 gigabytes of data per second and has storage capability of uh, 248 terabytes and provides these devices to ISPs for free in order to ensure that the Netflix content is delivered uh, without, without any kind of hiccups and just as efficient as efficiently as possible. You know, it's kind of like trying to say sentences like that as efficiently as possible. Not only does this CDN run or free BSD, it also exclusively runs open source software. So this is interesting because they, they use 
uh, for FreeBSD, but they also don't even they don't use the stable version of FreeBSD. They use the a current or head version of the software, so they get constantly updates, and it's it's really cool that they're you know they're kind of basically beta testing at the same time as deploying this thing. So like they have to have you know very a lot of confidence in it to be able to be willing to do that. So uh, this is a it's what they have the, by doing this. They have quicker feature inter- iteration. They have access to the newest features from FreeBSD. Uh, they get quick, you know, new bug fixes, all all kinds of uh, stuff. So it's really cool to see like that they're you know they're using open source software because we, I mean, Netflix has you know been a, a big proponent to open source software. They've also contributed back to FreeBSD in some cases. Uh, so it's really cool to see, and I, I it was really interesting to have like you know a nice a presentation talking about how these these big companies are not just utilizing the software, but like how they're doing it, and you know it's, it's really cool. I wonder if they're using ZFS replication to get this done. I know that's a I know that's the way that Alan is doing it at Scale Engine. Um, they haven't. They, they don't think they actually expressed like how they're doing that, but it'd be it, it makes sense because I mean I would assume that they're using. Free is they're using FreeBSD specifically because they have ZFS at that point, and you can technically use ZFS on Linux too, but it's not as robust. It's not as like useful because there's some kind of drivers issues that are not working. Uh, like basically because of the licensing, a lot of people avoided it for a long time, and the but ZFS works fantastic on FreeBSD, and it's pretty much the reason you use FreeBSD. So that's why I assume that they would use. Uh, they would be using FreeBSD on their servers because it allows them to have ZFS on all of their data centers and everything. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that they would do that. And it probably are using a pooling structure for that too. Do you think it's interesting that companies like Google who are utilizing, as I understand it, Debian testing instead of Debian stable, and in this case with Netflix using the head version of FreeBSD, that they're not necessarily sticking with these long-term support, super stable systems they're looking for the latest and greatest cutting edge stuff that Linux is doing. I find that kind of interesting because you would think, and if you're delivering video content and things like that, you need to make sure that it's super, super stable so nothing breaks, but they're achieving amazing things doing this this way. I think in this case, it's more of like, the, the, they're using Debian testing so stable is just to get updates faster and to get security patches faster. Because, I mean, in terms of Debian stable, you still get security patches, but you don't get feature updates and you don't get bug fixes unless it actually is a security problem. So it makes sense for them to be doing it mainly because they have, I would, I would, and I know for a fact that Google has people who contribute to Debian. And I would assume that uh, Netflix has uh, their own developer team that are making sure everything's working well like before they deploy it. So I would assume that the reason they're doing it is to get this, they the up-to-date bug fixes and new features and everything, but at the same time, they have a dedicated team specifically to make sure that nothing happens. Whereas the a lot of t- companies that are not as big or you know super laser focused as these companies are, is to have uh, like an enterprise structure where their workstations are using Debian stable because that way they instead of having a, a, a small team that are you know helping hundreds and hundreds of employees, they're doing this on their server backend. So the only people who are actually utilizing it are the, the server team, the developer team. So according to Netflix, they are using free BSD and commodity parts and achieving 90 gigabyte a second serving TLS encrypted connections, utilizing only 55% of the CPU uh, on a 16 core 2.6 gigahertz CPU there. So this is something obviously that only the open source tools can achieve. And I think it's awesome to hear about all of these big companies, these giant companies that people are very familiar with and utilize every day, 
rely on open source to deliver their content. Absolutely. Bullet Rage is coming to Linux. We have a new twin stick shooter on the horizon coming for 2019 and have support for Linux. Now, Bullet Rage is an intensive twin stick arcade shooter with nonstop adrenaline action and four players co-op. It uh, it has a lot of uh, difficulty modes, story campaign modes, the ability to unlock endless weapons customizations, uh, dash and wreck havoc into swarms of deadly enemies and overwhelming firepower with insane power-ups and Westham's customizations. Does anybody that cares about gaming want to tell me about the, this particular what, it, game? You read that with such enthusiasm. I know. I was, I'm, I, really, I'm trying. Here's the thing. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to, 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 to motivate myself to really be like, this is how we move Linux forward is the gaming aspect. Cause there's, and I try so hard and I just, I get halfway see, you're, there. You're getting there, though. I mean, I've heard I, about the progress. Switch on your show that you've got the right. Nintendo Switch. You're love starting to get more and more into gaming. I mean, this yep. is something that's going to, it's not going to stop. And you're like, okay, well, I play this one game on the Switch with my kids and I have fun. This is going to compound into the point where in the future, Noah's mm-hmm. going to be covering these sections better than any of us. He's going right. to be like, let me tell you about Bullet Rage, guys. I played it exactly. all weekend. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably not going to happen, but it, it but happened yeah, for I, me. I, it we can, can happen for, for high things. You missed out on a ton of fun, Noah, because one of these days you're going to join us in one of our gaming sessions. And yesterday I was playing with Dustin from Ubuntu Budgie and mm-hmm. Dark One, and we were knocking out in the mean greens oh, some yeah. enemies there. And we were playing Ballistic Overkill. And we just sat there while we're playing and talked Linux. And in fact, I ended up, that's why I ended up on Budgie, because afterwards we ended up talking Linux so much. I was like, well, you keep talking about Budgie. Let me just drop it in here and see how sure. it works. So, I mean, you get to geek out plus game. This is this is the perfect, the perfect thing to get you involved in. So one of these days when you join us, you're going to see how much fun it is. And you're going to be a big gamer. You bet. I'm in. Just give me a time and date. All right. Awesome. <laughs> so Bullet Rage does look like a lot of fun here. It is a cross-platform game. You've got lots of customization, difficulty mode, story, uh, story uh, modes in there and different campaigns and lockable customization, all of this stuff. But the main thing is, it's just craziness. When you go in there, it's just bullet frenzy, craziness, shooting everywhere. This, the old school twin shooters in action and being brought. And it is available natively on Linux. So you're not going to have to use Steam Play or anything else to utilize it. So you're going to get some really good performance there. And if you check out the video on it, it just looks awesome. All right, another game you can check out on Linux, if that's not your style, if you're not into the shooters, is Loria RTS. That is available now on Linux. Now, an RTS is a real-time strategy game, so you start getting into the real thoughtful, mind-strategic elements of gaming. This would be a game to check out because it was inspired by Warcraft 2. And a lot of us that grew up in gaming, Warcraft 2 is one of those pinnacle games that you just absolutely fell in love with and played way too much and endless hours of because it was just, it was an amazing game that really captivated you and the strategies you could deploy in defeating your friends and things were just immensely awesome. So this is bringing those RTS games back. I am so happy to see developers focusing on something other than battle arena shooters right now. And so to me to see these type of games come back is super important, but the game Uh, introduces not just RTS elements, but also RPG elements such as hero units, collecting items, quest-driven missions. And uh, I think it's an interesting take on the RTS genre that they have here, uh, utilizing things like the intelligent AI, smooth controls, 
the aesthetics that they have in here for the world. This is one that's on my wish list right now, and it's pretty cheap. But after buying that video card, I got to take a break from the spending money here. But it's $12.34 and has all positive reviews on there. So if you are a real-time strategy fan, definitely check that game out. Okay, on to the software spotlight. And I can see what you're doing here, Ryan. You're giving me a pixelated game in a terminal. I would never do that. Whilst trying to teach me... You totally do that. I'd rather use leaf, uh, leaf pad for. <laughs> so, so what we're going to do is Vim Adventures. You got it. Someone has had the audacity to go out there and make a game to teach <laughs> you how to use Vim. That's awesome. So, that's great. It makes, that's it's great. Nice, it makes it so easier to use Learning Vim. Vim isn't usually considered to be a fun activity. Really? I thought it was great. But our software spotlight changes that. Vim Adventures is a browser-based video game where you utilize the Vim keys to navigate and unlock new adventures and islands. Whoopee! <laughs> this you is a really simple oh, learning tool right. that introduces you to Vim navigation and file manipulation and training your brain to memorize these keys through key-binding repetition. Now, listen, Zeb, you told me I'm done with the Pixel games. Stop giving them to me. So you, I didn't even give you a game this week. No, you get. I followed your rules perfectly. This, this is a, this a, a teaching utility. I don't know what yeah, you're this talking is about. A, this is educational. Right. Browser-based video game. Next time we'll, get him, we'll give him, give him the, uh, the Vim Snake game so it teaches you how to use it through Snake. <laughs> this is no, actually I mean, someone in our Telegram group recommended this as a fun way to learn Vim because they heard me learning... Uh, I was learning and utilizing Vim more and more, and it is fun. It's a it's a cool little game that you can play. It takes no time. You can boot it up there, and you start unlocking this adventure. And you'll be happy to know, Zeb, it's pixelated. And I know how much you love those type of games. Absolutely. So is this is this person who wrote an email in a second cousin twice removed or something? It was me <laughs> sending it in. <laughs> <laughs> under a pseudonym, but still, it's an amazing adventure, Zeb, that I hope you will try out uh, and live stream it for us. Well, the good news is that this particular Vim you can get out of really easily. You just click the X <laughs> in the top right-hand corner, which I did after about 20 seconds. I wish Sorry, you would live stream it for us next time, Zeb. <laughs> yeah, fail, next. So uh, speaking of next, the uh, tips and tricks of the week, we have a new uh, a, a terminal a tip for you. And that is if you, if you were looking for files, like through your files, and you need to get the, like, the first line or the last line of a file, or you just wanted to like, just output that really quickly, there are actually a couple commands you could use, or they come up with a couple tools that you can use to make it a lot easier. So one is head and tail. And head will get you the first line of an individual document and tail will get you the last line of that document. So you can use uh, you can use tail and head and scripts to quickly and automatically open up various different files. And so let's say you had like a script, you wanted to pull out the first line of 10 different documents. You could then do that and it would go through the process and pull out every single one of those for each of those types of, so it makes it a lot easier to test it out. And also you could uh, use the uh, switch where it does the, the tac in, tac in, uh, command parameter for uh, buying depending on the amount of number lines that you want to do. So if you wanted to say, I want to get instead of just the first line, you can get 
15 lines of the same um, the same script the same file you can do head and that's dash in for our uh, US listeners right right tack in head tack in 15 and you can put the ta- the, the, the the like test.txt or something whatever file it is and it will get the the 15 lines of that and uh, it, it, it's it's a really cool thing, and I've I've used it so for so many times. Like I, for, I forget that these types of things exist. So it's really it's a good tip. Uh, Ryan was suggesting like we should we could talk about it because it's like, oh right, that is a thing that people might not know. So it's it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. But just to, to clarify, is this tack like a British drawing pin where you can put things up on the wall with? No, no, <laughs> well, it's a tack like a dash, the- but it's not a dash. It's a tack. <laughs> wow. Well, technically, dashes have multiple links. Tacks only one length, and therefore, and it's not a hyphen because it's not hyphenating multiple words. It's in the beginning of the word, so tack. You're welcome. All right, I promise to be nice to know or uh, Michael on this show, so I'll just be quiet. <laughs> well, you didn't have to promise. It's, I mean, how could you say? How could you be mean to me? It's like, look at this face. It's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might cut that. How ridiculous that is. You better keep that in there. (laughs) All right. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it, to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and our Kofi supporters, or as Mike would say, our coffee supporters, whichever it is. And just want to give a special shout out to all of you for your continued support of the show. It means the world to us. It helps us be able to keep going and afford the various tools and hardware and equipment that we have. So thank you very, very much for supporting this show. That's right. We're also on coffee as a way to support the show. We mentioned a few episodes back that if you're looking for an alternative to Patreon due to concerns with their policies, coffee offers a nice monthly option that allows you to have the same perks as Patreon, but we'll be keeping both active for now, there's a link in the show notes, or you can check it out on our website. Go to destinationlinux.org. Check out our co- coffee page. The perks include things like access to live shows, unedited versions of the show sent right to your email, and our most sincere gratitude, as well as the ability to pick on Michael. All of that is included as a coffee as a coffee perk, so make sure to check us out at ko-fi.com slash destinationlinux, and uh, we appreciate all of you that support us financially, we couldn't do the show without you. Most definitely. And, and please get back to us and let us know what you think or if you've got any burning questions uh, via numerous methods. You can do email. Um, you can send those emails to comments at destinationlinux.org or we've got a Telegram group, a Discord channel, um, Google+, Plus. not quite sure for how much longer. How long has that got to it's go? Like a, it's like a month uh, left. Is it? Yeah. Okay, so we might need to take that out of the next the next show. Um, but you've got Twitter, Mastodon, and a plethora of other ways that Michael has been able to come up with. And all of those are available on our website with destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So please keep them coming because as you've seen from the show today, your one simple email discussing one particular product or whatever can lead us into having some fairly interesting discussions. So please keep them coming. Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, if you're interested, we get the the show keeps keeps going. There's, it doesn't stop here. So you could go to check out our own channels. We all have individual channels that we make our co- uh, separate content. So you could go to, uh, find Ryan at YouTube.com/dosgeek, where you can find him talking about hardware and all kinds of different things, especially the Radeon Seven. I'm looking forward to that one. And yeah. uh, so you can talk, uh, check out Zeb's at uh, YouTube.com/zebityboss. We'll have a link in the show notes if you don't know how to spell that. 
and uh, you can find him just plowing through some caravans on Euro Truck Simulator. Uh, you can find my content at trucksdigital.com, where I do This Week in Linux, so the, uh, specifically uh, news, uh, no, fil- no, like no discussion, just like a full news uh, headlines type of thing. Uh, you can also find Noah at asknoahshow.com, where he takes uh, Linux and business questions uh, from the, his audience on his radio, his radio show. And you, you don't forget to like that smash button and share the show on social media. So everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.